it's difficult to imagine Jesus tossing out an insult. I mean, the Gospels don't really give us much of Jesus' childhood, but, but try and picture it. Jesus at recess on the playground, throwing out insults, going toe-to-toe with a classmate. Well, your mama... See, it, it doesn't work, does it? Not with Jesus, because it's cruel. It's an insult. Now, it's not that Jesus is not, at times, willing to speak harshly. He'll call those that are self-righteously relying on their own goodness. He'll call them whitewashed tombs. He'll call them a brood of vipers. So he can come up with some appropriate accusations. But just tossing out an insult doesn't feel like Jesus. So, so when he meets in Mark chapter 7, this mother who comes begging for help, and he seems to say, no. And worse, he begins talking about the dogs who are at the table. Is he insulting her? See, this passage, it, it throws at us numerous difficulties. And, and, and the first is the obvious one. It's the, it's the challenge this mother faces. Here, we, we're introduced to this, this woman. Look back at verse 25. We, we find out that as soon as she finds out Jesus is in town, Jesus is in the vicinity, this woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at Jesus' feet. We see the difficulty. Her young daughter is possessed by an evil spirit. Her, her life in spiritual chaos, her home controlled by an evil power. All right, now, now the difficulty for the mother is clear to see, but maybe you and I have a different set of difficulties with this kind of passage. An evil spirit? Come on. I mean, are we, we're just talking about that was an ancient way of, of looking at, like, sickness. This is the kind of thing you and I would cure with a, with a visit to the ER with some, with, with, with some antibiotics, right? This is just their flawed understanding of the world. No, no, what, what Mark's gospel is saying to us, and this happens throughout the gospels, Jesus' confrontation is with the evil spiritual powers, demonic forces, demons themselves, Satan himself at work in the world. And you might think, but, but that's, that's silly. I don't, I don't think that way. Well, but do you not think that way just because, well, coming up with a natural explanation is easier? It feels easier because it's something you understand more clearly. And it's easier, perhaps, to have a natural rather than a supernatural explanation because you feel like, well, that would leave you in some control. But more than that, perhaps, perhaps your reason for rejecting out of hand the difficulties this woman faces is because your modern view of the world is much too small, much too narrow to acknowledge real spiritual evil in the world. And maybe, maybe the reason we hesitate as modern people to want to wrestle with spiritual evil is because once we acknowledge the supernatural, that beyond which we can see and touch and taste and measure, once we acknowledge the supernatural, then we might just end up acknowledging a power greater than ourselves. We might have to admit there is someone to whom we owe allegiance. And so the problem this woman faces is a demonic possession of her little 
girl. But another difficulty this passage throws out at us is the very fact that Jesus seems to not want to have anything to do with her. Now, now look, look back at verse 24 so we can kind of set the, the scene a little better. Jesus left that place. Now, what's that place? That's the place he's been ministering around a lake that we call the Sea of Galilee. He's been ministering in the towns around there. And things have been so busy that back in chapter 6, now I haven't read this to you yet this morning, and I did just dump you into the middle of Mark's gospel, so I don't expect that you knew, oh, I remember these verses from chapter 6. No, but back in chapter 6, we find out that Jesus has been doing so much work that everywhere he goes, people recognize him, and they come asking for help. This is the way chapter 6 of Mark's gospel ends. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, so he travels from town to town by boat, as soon as he steps out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. So Jesus is leaving this place of significant ministry, this place where he's bombarded by crowds everywhere he goes, where he's recognized as soon as he steps foot, even near their villages, and he leaves that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He wanted to enter a house so that no one would know about it. He was trying to keep his presence secret. He's essentially taking a retreat from the busyness of ministry with his disciples in order to teach them, to strengthen them, and encourage them. And he's gone a great distance. Now, your geography of, of Israel might not be great. And so, so to leave the, the Sea of Galilee, that region, and to travel to Tyre, which is on the coast, it's now in, in modern-day modern Lebanon, to travel to this city, it's a distance that's considerable. Even today, if there were roads that went straight from one to the other, and there are not because of political borders and wars, but it would take you a couple of hours by car. It's a trip down to the beach. It's not a big deal. Oh, except that Jesus isn't traveling by Volkswagen. He's not jumping on a train. He's walking. So he has gone a considerable time to get to this place. And as soon as we hear the name of the town, the city which he is near, Tyre, we're reminded that Jesus has traveled a great distance. He's left the comforts of the Jewish people. He's left Israel, and he's gone into a foreign territory. Now, in the Old Testament, Tyre was meant to be part of the promised land that God had given to his people, but they, they never went that far. It was always a foreign place. And so he's leaving Israel and going to a foreign country. And so that when we, when we get more details about the woman, we learn that she's from there. Look at 20, verse 26. The woman was a Greek. And that means she wasn't born in what you and I would today call Greece. She was born in Syrian Phoenicia. She was born in this region. But she is not Jewish. She's excluded from the people of God. She's a foreigner. She is religiously, ethnically separate. She's a Gentile. And so she comes begging Jesus for help. To help this woman for an ancient rabbi, to help this woman's daughter in the ancient world, this is beneath the dignity 
of a teacher. She, she doesn't deserve help. Everything about her excludes her from help. It might be beneath the dignity of another teacher, but to help her is not beneath the dignity of Jesus. And yet, even though he ultimately helps her, his response initially seems to be, no, I won't help. She comes, falls at his feet. She's begging Jesus for help. Now, Matthew, who was there at the scene, he actually tells the same story in his gospel, and he actually admits that the disciples were trying to keep her away from Jesus. They're trying to prevent this interruption. But she persists. She begs Jesus for help. But look again at his, his response. He throws up, uh, it seems, another barrier to her in verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Ouch. At best, at best, Jesus seems to be discouraging her. But, but, but is, he, is he just point, point blank insulting her, calling her a dog? Which, even if we didn't understand the ancient context, you and I understand the context. There are words we would use to speak harshly of a woman, words not appropriate for a pulpit. And remember the context. In the, in the Old Testament, the, the, in, this, in this divide between Jews and those who were not Jews, between Jews and Gentiles, or between the Jews and the Greeks, there was always a, a, a simmering hatred. So much so that, that think back to the story of David fighting Goliath. David, the man of God who goes with no armor on, with no sword, but, but takes the, 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 the wood of his, his sling, and he goes out and, to fight. What, what does Goliath say to him? As, as he laughs, as he mocks God, Goliath says to him, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? As if we're about to play fetch. Am I a dog? Well, as a good Jewish kid, the answer is, yep. You're as good as a dog. A filthy, wild animal that doesn't deserve to come near my house. And so when Jesus says to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. At a minimum, he's making things difficult for her. But I don't think he's directly insulting her. First, I mean, it, it, when you read through the Gospels and Jesus' generous welcome of others, and you see even how he responds to her, finally, in this passage. But even here in his answer, it's a, it, 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 there's a, there, there are clear hints that he is inviting her to continue her petition. Like a wise teacher, he is, he's trying to, to point her to the right answer. And, 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 and now some of it is because we don't know what, when, when these words are written on the text, we can't hear the tone in which Jesus says it, right? Because there's one way if we could have recorded this and you could hear it being played back, you would know clearly if it was an insult, the harshness in Jesus' voice. But there's another way that it could be inviting, if there was a gentleness in what Jesus says. But, but look with me. Why, why do I think Jesus is, is leading her to keep pressing her petition? Look again at verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want. 
first. First implies what? Second, or first this, then this, or first and then second. First, the children, the children of Israel, need to eat. They need to receive the bread that comes from God, and and Jesus' most recent big miracle was to feed 5,000 people bread, teaching them that he is the bread of life, the the eternal life that's offered. So first, there is bread for the children, which means there is a second. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Jesus is implying what will become explicit later in the ministry of the church. Think of the way the, the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish boy who grew up really hating the work of the church, but was transformed by the gospel. Think of the way that that he describes the flow of the gospel first for the children of God and then for the rest of the world. This is is the beginning of of the book of Romans, a letter that Paul wrote, a significant letter for for our understanding of the gospel. And at the beginning of Romans, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 16, this is what the apostle says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's talking about the good news of what Jesus has done. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You see, Jesus is, in some sense, letting this woman know that there is the possibility of blessing, even for those born in Syrian Phoenicia. And look at, look at her response. She is up to the challenge. I mean, there's a brilliance in what she says, not only in the the, the quick-wittedness of her reply, but in the depth of the theology which she shows to us. In verse 28, when Jesus says, it's not right to take bread and toss it, to take bread from children and toss it to the dogs, she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. There is rich theology in her response. She doesn't come to Jesus and say, wait a second. I know that there's an implication here, that there's this hatred between Jews and Gentiles, and you have just just brought all of this to the surface by calling me potentially a dog. I'm not going to take it. No, what does she say? Even the dogs. She comes as one who comes humbly because she comes desperate. But don't you see, that's, that's really how each of us comes to Christ. Desperate for help, unable to do anything to save ourselves, so we come in humility, knowing that, that yes, yes, I come as one unworthy. I'm not a physical, biological descendant of Abraham. I'm not invited to sit at the table initially with the children. But I know, God, that your grace is so big that there is blessing even in the crumbs. See, and that's actually been the story from the very beginning, from when God first talked to Abraham and chose one man from among the nations. He was a pagan at one time, and then God chose him. But when God chose him, it wasn't so that the gospel would be kept small, so that grace would be kept close and only for Abraham's descendants. No, Abraham was blessed by God so that he would be a blessing to all nations. 
And so even here, when Jesus is, is at a distance, he doesn't appear to have come for the work of gospel ministry to take the gospel to the nations, but, but Mark is telling us that's exactly what he's doing. Jesus may have come to get away from the crowds, but when Jesus arrives, there is always grace available. And actually, when Jesus leaves this region along the coast and he travels back past the Sea of Galilee, this is what happens in verse 31. Jesus will leave this vicinity of Tyre and, and travel down through Sidon and then down to the Sea of Galilee where he had been and into the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis, you know how many towns that makes up because you've watched the Olympics. So you know a decathlon has 10. It's 10 towns, but these are, again, Gentile towns. These are pagan towns. These are towns filled with Greeks. And so this woman captures the theology of Jesus' ministry. Yes, first you came to give bread to the children, but now there are even crumbs available for everyone. And that's explicitly the ministry and the work of Jesus. See, she acknowledges that she is undeserving. And that's what we have to, that's what we have to admit. I don't deserve God's grace. But here in the ministry of Jesus, I can find true forgiveness, find real healing, find true rescue. And Jesus is here resting with his disciples away from the crowds, but his gospel never rests. His gospel never slows down. Even here we find hope for the nations, hope through the ministry of Jesus. This woman, we don't know how much she understood of who Jesus was, but, but we're told as soon as she heard about him, she comes running. Perhaps initially with a, with a vague understanding that, that Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. Maybe with, with barely understanding what that would mean for, for all of the nations. And yet, in her response to Jesus, in, in hearing that he is offering the possibility, the possibility that bread would be given, would be given even to those outside of Abraham's family. She begins to see the gospel truth, that Jesus is the king, not only of Israel, but the king of the world, the king who has come to give his life. Because his power over this evil spirit is shown in its fullness in his death on the cross, in his power over death, over the reign of Satan in rising from the dead, so that this woman overcomes the difficulties of her circumstances, overcomes the chaos of her life, overcomes even the hesitation the apostles have at letting her get near to Jesus. And she says, but yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so in Matthew's gospel, not only does Jesus do what he does here in healing the daughter, but in Matthew's gospel, he points to this woman as an example of great faith. Who's the example of great faith? This woman whose daughter was possessed by an evil spirit, who came to Jesus, this woman born in Syrian Phoenicia, this Greek from outside of the covenant people of God, she is the picture for us of what it means to come to God by faith. She comes pleading with Jesus, begging Jesus, and so she is for us an example of what prayer should look like. Persistent prayer bold prayer, a begging and pleading with Jesus for help. 
Cyril of Alexandria was an ancient theologian, a theologian of the early church, and he said that, that Christians should pray so as to make God ashamed if he does not answer. Our prayers should be so big and so grand that if God didn't answer, he should feel embarrassed. That's the kind of prayer this mother brings. So you, you realize, though, that, that to do that means the little things in your life become less important in your prayers. Your prayers become about the radical transformation you need. And so we have the, the power of a mother's plea, and, and perhaps on Mother's Day this needs to be an encouragement to you as a mother to persist in prayer. For those, even perhaps for your grown children who need to come to find their hope in Jesus Christ. Because we have an example of a mother who comes with a spiritual problem she cannot solve. But don't you see, that's the problem every mother has for her children. A radical spiritual need for God to transform your children. To take a heart of stone, that biblical image of, of a dead heart, set against God and His purposes and give a heart of flesh, a living, beating heart. That's a spiritual transformation that you as a mother have, have no power to affect. Yes, you can preach the gospel, you can pray with, with urgency, but you need God Himself to intervene. We've been talking through this series about how these passages are meant to give us a picture of what it looks like to share the gospel with everyone, even the unexpected, even a woman with a chaotic life at home, even a woman who is far from God, because the gospel is for all people, for people of every nation, for, for nations near and far, for Jew and Gentile alike. See, even here, the, the mission of Jesus, even as he retreats from the crowds, his mission continues, showing us that the gospel goes everywhere. And so take the gospel to those places. And that's good news for us because we don't live very close to the land given to Abraham. We live a world away and centuries away from those promises, but those promises are made real to us through the mission of the church in bringing the gospel to us. And consider how the gospel presses through difficulties and barriers. God is at work even in the lives of the people you might least expect. And so don't hesitate to share the gospel even in the chaos of life, even in desperate times. See, see, we might, we might want to just help people. We wanna, might want them to, to get their lives in order because it's, if it seems too chaotic. How will she even hear the gospel with all of this going on around her? Just throw Jesus into the mess. Let Jesus have access to people in the, in the midst of their chaos by you announcing good news to them. Jesus can handle their mess. I mean, think of a woman whose life is more out of control than this. A demon is possessing her, her, her little girl. And yet when she meets Jesus, she finds real hope. See, and sometimes that might just be as simple. As you as a Christian, when you meet a friend in need saying, can I pray for you? And not in the callous, like my, you know, like thoughts and prayers are with you. I mean, like right now, can I pray for you? You know, it's possible you have a friend who's so offended by this that they'll say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. 
Okay, well, press back a little. Prayer is access to the Almighty God, the one who loved us enough to send his son. Would it be all right then for me to just pray for you after we go our separate ways? Use those moments as an opportunity for the gospel to be made known. Don't wait until it feels like, well, this feels like a really natural way to get to Jesus. What is more natural than somebody who comes to you with a need and you have access to the king of the universe with all power and authority than to say, can I pray for you? Now, I had the privilege here on Mother's Day of of worshiping with the two most important mothers in my life, my own mother and the mother of my children, my wife. Now, my mother, when I was a kid, I hated going grocery shopping with her. Okay, now to be fair, as an adult, I kind of hate the chore of grocery shopping too. I don't do all that much of it. But, but my memories of grocery shopping with my mom is that it took forever. And not just because she had to feed a family of seven, and so there was a lot to, to plan and to get together. I just mean because my mom, it felt like to me, talked with everyone in the grocery store. And she would stop and pray out loud in a grocery store aisle for people. She would just say that to them. Can I, could I pray for you? Because they, and, and I assumed that these were all people that she knew, and she did know a lot of people, and you've got kids in sports, and you're in Bible studies, and you're serving at the schools, and you're doing all kinds of things. Then, yes, yeah, she ran into people that she knew, and she offered to pray with them. But sometimes it was people that she just kind of met, that you kind of passed multiple times because you're kind of hitting about the same aisles. So that by the time we'd passed this person the third or fourth time, my mom knew the deepest problems in her life. And I hated it as a kid. I've got better things to do. This is taking me forever. Scooby-Doo is going to start. How am I going to watch this? I just wanted to get out of there. But I also think part of it was I, I hated the potential embarrassment of my mom praying in public. And yet think of what a picture of the gospel mothers you can be to your children and grandchildren, that Jesus meets the needs of people in grocery stores. See, that's the hope of the gospel, that Jesus meets us in our time of need. This woman sees the truth of it. This mother comes begging Jesus, and she understands that she is not deserving, but there is so much grace available from Jesus that even crumbs would be enough for her. And yet think of the greatness of the grace of Jesus. He gave his life to forgive us our sins. This mother's love is a picture of faith. The powerful, persistent love of this mother points us to our gospel hope. There are crumbs of grace for you today. Crumbs of grace that come from Jesus, our Savior.